This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. A lot going on this past week. Second quarter earnings starting to roll out in full force. Fed Chair Jay Powell taking the debate over inflation to Capitol Hill. And we've got a batch of CEOs, Tim, the CEOs of Raytheon Carnival and Ariel Investments all on tap. Plus, the billionaire space race reaches new heights. Literally, Virgin Galactic (laughs) founder Richard Branson makes a successful test flight. And Jeff Bezos, well, he's up next. Washington Post space reporter Christian Davenport talks all about these so-called space barons and the burgeoning market for space tourism. You're going to be on the ground watching Jeff Bezos I go up am. into air. Tuesday, 9 a.m. That's but, when it's planned for. You know, these are rockets, though, so yeah. there could be delays, wind, that sort of thing. All right. Fingers crossed it all works out for everyone, including you. We're also going to take a close look at the business of betting on ESG. AB InBev on the heels of signing a record $10.1 billion sustainability-linked revolving credit facility. We're going to hear from the company's CFO and chief sustainability officer. And the Republican Party remains fractured months after the impeachment of former President Donald Trump. Why a rising star in the GOP may pay a steep price for his vote to oust the commander in chief. It was one of our most read stories this week. All of that to come, we begin with this week's cover story in the magazine, which also happened to be a Bloomberg Big Take this week. It's about the future for the drug company that's become a household name during the pandemic. We're talking about Moderna and what is Moderna's second act? Bob Langreth, healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News, also Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. They joined us to talk all about the rise of the newest player in big pharma. Actually, I remember that exact conversation with Bob about a year and a half ago. And and he was like, so there's this company called Moderna that has this technology. And it's going to be really interesting to see if it works. So here, here we are. Um, uh, and, and Bob, let's just bring you in. You know, like the what we set out here to do was to say, look, like, Moderna has been one of the, the big heroes of the pandemic. And if you can solve COVID-19, what else do they have? And what else does MR, what else is mRNA capable of? So what are they working on? Efficacy has definitely been de- demonstrated very powerfully for vaccines. And so now they're working on a whole host of other vaccines. Uh, there's like about 50 or more viruses discovered in the last 40 years. Only a tiny handful have vaccines. You know, Moderna thinks... Their technology, which is kind of modular and fast moving, can be, you know, make vaccines to a lot of them. They're working on a flu vaccine. They're working on several other respiratory viruses. They ultimately want to combine it to one kind of super booster that you might get like once a year and deal with a whole host of like, you know, fall, winter type respiratory viruses. They're working on long term, they're working on HIV and they're even starting to think some early trials in cancer vaccines, which has been a, a long promising but very difficult area. Bob, I've got 100 billion questions for you about that. I mean, this company <laughs> hit a $100 billion market cap. The expectations on it are incredibly high in terms of what Moderna can do. Can this messenger RNA technology science really translate to a lot of different vaccines ultimately? Or do we still not quite know? Well, we're going to have to wait and see. They're certainly going to be testing a lot of things. You know, one of the things we talk about in the story is uh, they're certainly pursuing booster shots. We may need them at least a third booster shot at some point. It's 
you know, not at all clear how big the, you know, the market for COVID-19 is going to be sort of in the long term. So there is going to be pressure for them to come up with other things and new things and not be dependent on, you know, an endless market for COVID-19 boosters. And the other thing going on is that now everyone else knows, every other drug company in the world knows that this, this technology can really work, uh, you know, at least in the infectious vaccine area. And they're all pursuing it and all kind of all trying to come up with, like, you know, newer, better versions of mRNA. So you spent some time at uh, one of the production facilities for Moderna outside of, of Boston. It's a former Polaroid factory. What is the competitive advantage that the company has now that every other biotech company knows that mRNA has been so successful, at least when it comes to coronavirus? Well, the basic competitive advantage they have is they've done it. They've done it successfully. The only other company that's achieved that level of success is obviously Pfizer-BioNTech. But not every mRNA vaccine has worked as well. There's a third one that was tried, uh, CureVac. Its trials came out a few weeks ago, and it was only 48% effective. You can't just put an R- mRNA in a vaccine and have it automatically work. You've got to make the right choices, and then it can work, you know, do a powerful immune response. They are one of the two companies with real experience of doing this on a large scale now. And, you know, their production, they, you know, they haven't matched Pfizer, which is just been this incredible, you know, vaccine-producing juggernaut. They haven't matched Pfizer-BioNTech, but they haven't had big problems and kind of, you know, more or less made their numbers, which is impressive for a company that hadn't really made until last year. They, they had a plant, a small plant, but it was basically kind of like a pilot plant, never made 100,000 doses of anything in a year, and now they're talking about as many as a, as a billion doses. So that's quite a scale-up. You followed, obviously, I, you know, that little story I said at the beginning where we sat next to each other in that conference room all those months ago and you were like, so Moderna. <laughs> in I, person? That was, it was in the before times, wow. just, just before everything changed. I'm curious because you've written about Moderna week in, week out <laughs> over the past year and then you got to do a story like this and speak to the CEO and everything else. I'm wondering, what did you learn while you were working on this story? How they did this, is, you know, it's still a very small company relative to what they've done. They, like, they're up to 1,500 people now. Well, they, you know, they were like 800 at the start of last year. So they did all this it was a relatively small number of people, which is, you know, it's impressive. They were able to, you know, to make this many doses, you know, with a few contractors and you know, obviously some government funding. And that was significant. But until last year, until the pandemic came along, it was a startup company. It was a well-funded startup, but, you know, most of its va- most of its products were early trials. It wasn't planning to have anything on the market, you know, even if things went well for a few years. So this is like, you know, a rather, you know, impressive scale-up. And they certainly have big ambitions. That was Bloomberg News healthcare reporter Bob Langreth and the editor of Bloomberg Businessweek, Joel Weber, on our Moderna cover story. The company's vaccine, Carol, it's proven among the most Mm -hmm. effective so far in preventing COVID and is now working on its next mRNA breakthrough. Can it pull it off? I don't know. Lots of expectations and hopes certainly from the company, but uh, time will tell. Still ahead, three chief executives from three different sectors. We're talking aerospace and defense with Raytheon's Greg Hayes. We're setting sail with Arnold Donald of Carnival, who just is getting ships back out to sea from U.S. ports. And coming up next, market recovery and potentially a looming correction and the risk-reward of wider market access with John Rogers, the co-CEO of Ariel Investments. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. 
Our next guest is well known to our audience and definitely the investment world. He's also on the board of Nike, McDonald's, and the New York Times. He's also a powerful voice when it comes to racism and inequalities, Tim. We're talking about John Rogers, the chairman, co-CEO, and chief investment officer of Ariel Investments. He spoke with Carol and New York Deputy Bureau Chief Shartia Brantley about the benefits of business diversity. Also, his unique assessment of current market conditions. Check it out. I'm optimistic in this recovery is going to surprise people by how strong it is. Now, again, the downside is the recovery is so strong that it's going to force interest rates higher and inflation higher. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful about companies that are going to be susceptible to higher rates. But when you mention real estate, uh, real estate services companies, we like JLL, we like CBRE. We think those companies are going to benefit from all the transactions as people restructure their real estate going forward. So things that are going to benefit from transition to a new economy, a higher inflationary economy, those are the kind of small and mid-sized companies that we're looking at and working on at Ariel. Even as we see the return to office efforts not be as, I guess, accelerated as maybe <laughs> some CEOs would like to see at this time? You know, it has been sluggish here, at least here in America, but as we've done our worldwide checks, it's been remarkable how many of the European countries and Asian countries, you know, people have been eager to get to back to work and people are filling up their office spaces. Here in America, maybe we'll go to three and four day weeks in the beginning and people will be slow to totally come back to normal. But I think, you know, Americans were missing our colleagues, we're missing our friends. Business owners know that you need people in the office to be able to interact and inspire each other, share ideas, uh, express different opinions, and move your companies forward. So eventually over time, I think you're gonna get back to more normality. Now maybe people won't travel as much now that we've proven that we can do meetings by Zoom, and so I would be a little cautious around some of the traditional hotels, mm -hmm. traditional uh, airlines that you know, people will still travel for entertainment and vacations, but I think there'll be a lot less business travel that is maybe permanent because of the extraordinary technology and things that we've gotten used to as a society. You did mention SPACs. We had that headline, the SPAC merger with Space for Momentus threatened uh, by an SEC fine. Whether it's meme stocks, how do you as someone who has been investing in the market for a long time, you know that we see increasingly disruption. You see traditional fintech, uh, traditional technology companies and also traditional banking companies, financial companies increasingly gobble up some of these fintechs or at least look at them much more closely. How will they ultimately impact our universe, our financial universe long, longer term? Well, I think you will you know, continue to see more and more mergers as time goes on. You know, one of our favorite stocks is Lazard. They're mm -hmm. a tr traditional investment banker. They're really, really good at putting deals together. And Ken Jacobs, their CEO, is terrific and the team's terrific. So I think you're going to continue to see M&A. I know right now there's this push that maybe people are fearful in certain industries of too much consolidation and too much scale. But I just think over time, rationality will come back because, you know, in this new society, with all the things going on digitally, there's just so many ways for companies to compete with each other effectively. And there are, there are exceptions, of course, you know, the Facebooks of the world and some of those giant companies that have become these huge unicorns. Well, maybe they need to be reined in on certain ways. But I think ultimately the vast majority of transactions will have to continue to occur because you need to have these you need to have scale to compete with the giants. It would be unfair if the smaller and mid-sized companies can't have M&A and have to compete as smaller companies against these huge huge monolithic 
giant companies that are out there in today's economy. If I can follow meme stocks, I mean, how often does somebody come up to you or you're at a social gathering on the weekend and someone's like, all right, John, what do you make of these meme stocks? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Um, we do get some of those calls. You know, the, the guy that uh, you know, always brings my pizza to, from uh, Gino's Pizza here in Chicago to my house, he's always asking me about different stocks and what's happening with the meme stocks. And in particular, of course, everyone wants to talk about Bitcoin and whether it's time to invest and that they, did they miss it or not miss it. But again, that's always a sign when you just have sort of average Americans who are doing great work in their day jobs, deciding they want to be stock pickers and follow trends at the peak. It's, again, it's always a sign that you're getting toward a top, mm. you know, and, and uh, I think those are signs that we really are there. And as you know, the, Joe Kennedy always said when he realized uh, that we were, that the Great Depression was coming, it was time to get out of the market in the 20s when the shoeshine boy was giving stock tips to him. Right. Uh, and he realized that was the time for him to move out of the markets. Well, let's talk about financial literacy and how that plays into alleviating your concerns. You know, I think we need to continue to do more and more. We have just scratched the surface when it comes to financial literacy. You know, during the Obama administration, I had the privilege to be able to, be able to chair uh, his council on financial capability for young Americans. And we talked to the president about how can we get more financial institutions to partner with urban public schools to teach kids about the market, give the kids real uh, dollars to invest in real stocks, be role models for young people of color to get engaged in the financial services sector as career choices. So I think we have a long way to go because it's just so critically important. You know, African Americans get exposed to the markets at young ages. You know, we know the wealth gap in this country has gotten larger and larger. We've fallen further behind because of the historical discrimination that we face in this country. So the way to catch up is to get folks involved in the best parts of the economy where the wealth and jobs are being created today and learning about the magic of compound interest and getting comfortable in equities. Because we all know when you get a job now, you have to be your own money manager with your 401k plan. So financial literacy is more important in this country than ever. John, how do we get there? The reason I ask is I actually came across a, a Federal Reserve uh, paper that was done by a researcher about 10 years ago, I think, talking about the importance of financial literacy. Uh, I think about someone like you know Warren Buffett, who talked about compound interest, like knew it when he was at a young age. We have been talking about the importance of financial literacy across society for a long time. And I wonder, how do we really move the needle on this? Because I agree that this is something that unlocks kind of the financial, is the key that kind of unlocks financial wealth for more Americans and certainly for black Americans. You know, I think one of the things I talk about all the time, you know, my father bought stocks for me every birthday and every mm -hmm. Christmas after I was 12 years old. And I got exposed to the markets at an early age and loved it. You know, there's a program in New York, New York City Rise, that is doing that with young people, getting kids into 529 programs at, you know, right in kindergarten and on the way. And at the Ariel Community Academy that's now 25 years old, we give kids real money to invest in real stocks, and they get to see the money grow from kindergarten through eighth grade. And I think that's just so important. You gotta get exposure. You know, get your hands a little dirty with the markets, learning how to do the research, seeing the inevitable ups and downs, but seeing how markets steadily climb even after you have some ups and downs. That was John Rogers, the chairman, co-CEO, and chief investment officer of Ariel Investments. And our thanks to Bloomberg's Chartia Brantley as well. We talked about a lot of things. So if you want to hear the entire conversation, check it out on our podcast feed at Bloomberg.com. Still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, the aerospace and defense industry is 
it's of course an essential component of the U.S. economy. It's people who actually make stuff. Our next guest is right in the middle of the latest advances in everything from airliners to missiles. It's Raytheon Technologies CEO Greg Hayes in the latest installment of our Business Week Talk series. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. The chairman and CEO of the second largest defense company in the United States, he is Greg Hayes of Raytheon Technologies. He, by the way, became CEO following the completion of a merger involving Raytheon and United Technologies aerospace business. That was back in April of last year when the pandemic really tightened its grips on the country. He talked about completing the deal in the latest installment of our Business Week Talks series. Timmy also talked about his company's recovering aerospace business, defense systems, and the impact of inflation on his entire operation. He had some interesting thoughts on that and some of the comments by Fed Chief Jay Powell. Here's some of that conversation with Greg Hayes, CEO of Raytheon. You know, I, I asked that question you know, several weeks ago when I first heard uh, Chairman Powell talk about the effect of transitory price increases. And I, my concern there is what is really transitory? Because if you start to see inflation in labor, that's not transitory because labor costs don't go down. They may go up more slowly, but what we're seeing right now is a lot of, pre- or a lot of cost pressure uh, at the very low end of the, the labor scale. And I don't think that goes away. Now, will that translate into higher prices across all of the, the economic spectrum? I don't know. But we're also we're seeing inflation in commodities and mm-hmm. some of the raw materials as well. It's impacting what you guys are doing. Absolutely, every day. And so I, I worry that transitory, especially with all of these deficits, that we have two, we're talking $2.5 trillion deficits, we're pumping a lot of money into the economy. People are flush with cash. They're going to spend it. That's going to drive prices up. Are we going to get off of that drug soon? I don't think so. Would you go as so far to say that Fed policy is wrong based on what you're seeing in terms of economic growth and momentum from your clients and customers? Well, I don't know that I would say Chairman Powell is necessarily wrong. I think we have to think about not just Fed policy, monetary policy, but fiscal policy. That is, how much can we continue to borrow mm-hmm. and, and burden the next generation and the generation after that with these huge deficits? just to satisfy our our desire to have faster growth today. Is it better to have slower, steadier growth that is more sustainable? And I think that's the that's the calculus we have to think about. There's it's not just monetary, it's fiscal policy as well. I want to talk about commercial aerospace. I'm just curious, are your executives you and I were talking to how much you were able to work at home, right? You weren't flying around on planes. Planes are important to you right. in what you do. Um, what do you anticipate for business travel? What are your guys doing in terms of business travel? So interestingly, you know, we just really resumed business travel within the last month or so, where mm-hmm. I've been out on the road visiting factories, uh, talking to folks uh, on the on the front lines in the shops and in the in the uh, engineering organizations around the company, and we're starting to see it pick up. But certainly, business travel is forever changed, I would think, because of Zoom. We don't go back to pre-pandemic levels? Well, again, if you think about commercial air traffic, about 70% of commercial air traffic is um, for uh, leisure. That has come back, and it's come back faster, mm-hmm. stronger than I think anybody would have said. Now, you can just you know talk to Gary Kelly at Southwest or Doug Parker at American. Yeah. The 30% of business travel is the question. And what we think is like half of that, 15% of the total, is 
mandatory travel. That is, we got to send our technicians out to visit our products. We've got to service our products. That's going to come back, and it will come back relatively quickly. You know, will we still see big conventions in Las Vegas? Will we still see, you know, get get together for sales conventions? I, I think that will come back. But there is the other question: Will all of it come back, and how mm-hmm. soon? Our own views: We probably don't see a full recovery in business travel until 2024, 2025. Wow. There's a lot of deals going on. You guys just finished <laughs> a big deal combining assets and combining with United Technologies assets. And then you took over as the CEO of it all. Uh, and that was just as the pandemic was getting going. How tough was it to get that deal done? You have to really step back and think at, at UTC over the last couple of years, we had done a lot of M&A, but we really made a decision uh, in 2018 after we had purchased Rockwell Collins that we were going to split off into three businesses. As we were in the middle of that, those three spins, uh, Tom Kennedy who was the chairman and CEO of Raytheon called me and said, we should do a deal. Right which I thought was absolutely insane at the time, but... <laughs> but hey, but hey, here you, know, you are. Here we are. Um, and it turned out, and again, the more Tom and I talked about it, the, the more sense it made. But the last you know, four weeks before the deal closed, and we closed on April 3rd of, of last year, we were working from home. And the commercial airline industry was absolutely in the tank. Did you have a moment where you're like, oh my God, what what did we just do? <laughs> well, <laughs> Probably not because you've thought it through and you're, you, well, I, I think there, you know, there was, there was a question because we had made some big commitments to share owners. If we were to bring this company together, we said, we're going to return 18 to $20 billion of cash to share owners in the first three years after the merger. And it became very apparent that that was going to be tough to do. And so, you know, we quickly pivoted and said, okay, it's going to take us four years. But we had faith that the commercial aerospace business was going to come back. We continued to pay a very good dividend. We continued to to drive cash. We took a lot of cost out of the business. And it was interesting. I, I always tell people, you know, let's not waste a good crisis. That was Greg Hayes, chairman and CEO of Raytheon Technologies. More of that conversation to be featured in our upcoming shows and also in the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, Carnival Cruises just recently restarted cruising out of the U.S., even as the COVID Delta variant causes global cases to rise. We've got a progress report on the company's push to return to normalcy. Yes, we've got quotations around that with CEO Arnold Donald. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Carnival recently launched a few ships in the U.S., including one this past week. But despite the sailing restarts in the U.S. ports, its course is still full of pandemic-related unknowns, Tim. It drained $2.2 billion in cash during the second quarter, and its combined losses stemming from the coronavirus crisis, Carol, it now exceeds $9 billion. Still, the company remains hopeful of a swift return to profits if the world remains on course for a broader reopening. Right, and it's Carnival and the entire cruise industry kind of facing the same situation. Carnival President and CEO Arnold Donald joined us to talk about the path forward for the world's biggest cruise line. It is a phenomenally exciting, fulfilling feeling, not just because we get to welcome guests back on board our ships, but also because there's so many people who are dependent on cruise for their livelihood you know, port workers, Uber drivers, taxi drivers, the destinations around the world all have so many people dependent on the industry and 
people providing provisions to the ships and servicing the ships. So it's a very exciting time to have guest operations once again out of the U.S. How's it going so far with these ships that you have? And I know you've had ships going on over in Europe, so you know you've, you have some experience in how things go post-pandemic. How about with the U.S. ships specifically? Because I believe off the Galveston ship, passengers have already come off. How did it go? Was there any COVID cases? Were there any concerns? You know, it's gone exceedingly well. The ships in Europe, as you pointed out, for our Costa and Aida brands have been saving, sailing under different protocols because largely there people are unvaccinated. So physical distancing, universal testing, additional medical screening, et cetera. So far here in the U.S., we've been sailing under the conditional sale order issued by the Center for Disease Control, which focuses on having most of the guests vaccinated. And that allows for a more open cruise. And they've gone very, very, very well. We just got the net promoter scores back from the guests and it's the highest scores we've had in quite some time. Unlike a lot of the other folks sailing, we had a lot of people on our ship. We had over 2,600 guests on one ship, over 2,700 on another. We've already entered our second week of cruising those ships with even more guests on board. And the experience has just been fantastic, and it's, it's a very rewarding feeling to finally be get back out at sea, um, exceeding guest expectations, and, and just developing lifelong memories for people. Arnold, give us an idea about demand right now, because 2019 was a record year in terms of bookings. Where are you right now? Uh, where we are right now is uh, what we've told you back in June 24th, you know, we're between quarters with publicly traded companies, so we can only say so much. But at that time, we indicated that our bookings second half of 22 were well in excess of 2019's kind of record bookings, same point in time. Wow. And right now it's hard to talk a lot about occupancy and whatnot because of all the rules and regulations and restrictions and, and what have you. And some things we self-impose on ourselves, for example, in Europe, where we've um, absolutely reduced the number because of the additional protocols in place for those unvaccinated cruises. Uh, but to make a long story short, demand is robust. We have plenty of demand. Um, we're bringing the ships just in um, a few at a time. Uh, we have over 85 ships in total. Today, sailing in the U.S., we've had three. We're about to launch uh, new sailing, as you mentioned, in the Breeze, which will uh, be our fourth one. And then we'll have three ships in Seattle later this month. And then July 31st, Mardi Gras for Carnival. <laughs> uh, so our newest ship and just an unbelievably fabulous ship with the first roller coaster at sea. <laughs> first well, roller coaster at sea. Can you give us an idea of pricing power that you have right now, considering demand is so strong? And look, this, I'm asking this question in the context of the inflation data that we got earlier this week. People are getting back out there. Companies are raising prices because demand is so high. What is your pricing power right now? Yeah, well, pricing is, is strong. There's no question about it. You know, there's far more demand then there are cabins available, especially here in the U.S. with the sailings we have. So pricing is strong and we expect it to continue to be strong, not only because we're the best vacation experience there is, uh, but we're the best vacation value there is, even with stronger pricing compared to the equivalent land-based vacation. And so we're expecting um, a, a robust environment in demand, which leads to a robust environment for pricing, especially with the staggered introduction of um, ships coming back in, uh, which is going to happen 
you know, over time as destinations begin to open again. So, you know, what's interesting, too, is I have to wonder, Arnold, uh, you know, you came in after some crises at the, the ship, really righted the company. I do wonder how difficult, though, it is um, to kind of assess your outlook for this industry, especially, you know, we talk every day about the Delta variant and the increases that we're seeing once again, right? And you have different rules and regulations. We had a headline Canada to lift the ban on large cruise ships as of November 1st. How difficult is it to assess assess the outlook and get a get a hold of the business especially when once again we have something like the delta variant well i think um, so several comments first everyone should get vaccinated is the best way to protect themselves and those that they love so everyone should try to um, get a vaccination unless they have a medical reason or a deep religious you know belief for, uh, for to not other than that they they should get vaccinated having said that there will be other variants uh, there's a Delta variant, there'll be other variants. And what we have to do is learn as a society overall how to live with this virus mm -hmm. and the various variants that can come. And the best way to do that is to take the advanced medical uh, knowledge that exists and take advantage of it. So vaccinations now, uh, later there's also advanced treatments if, if someone does happen to contract a virus and having challenges with it. And so, uh, and then the other measures we need to take if there's a variant that shows up, which hasn't happened yet, uh, that is threatening to those who are vaccinated, uh, then we'll have to return to protocols of mask wearing and physical distancing and things we've learned until the medicine catches up, you know, with that particular variant. Uh, so, but keep in mind, we've dealt with viruses for decades, mm -hmm. um, the cruise industry has had to deal with Ebola and Zika and SARS and MERS, and, and the world has had to. Uh, and now the world is getting a grip on this particular virus and plaudits to all the scientists and technologists and all the people, the first responders, everyone that has gotten us, have gotten us to this point, uh, which is a phenomenal thing from something that we didn't even understand 15 right. months ago to multiple vaccines, advanced treatments, you know, known protocols to mitigate spread. And if we act responsibly, we can manage this. We are talking with Arnold Donald, of course, the CEO of uh, Carnival. Hey, Arnold, though, let me push a little bit on the Delta variant. I mean, how does the Delta variant at all impact your restart, especially here in the United States? As we said, Carnival Breeze going out uh, shortly later this afternoon. Um, does it, are you seeing any impact on bookings or any cancellations as a result of that? Uh, no, we have not. Uh, we have not seen a major impact. Again, I think the scientists around the world are pretty much aligned around the fact that um, being vaccinated uh, prevents two things. One is possibility of contracting a virus, but then if you do contract it, um, probability that you'll have any serious effects from it. It also appears, and there's a little more debate around this, but the scientists seem to agree, that it also mitigates the spread of the virus, that if you have it, you have less of a viral load, and so your propensity to transmit is a little bit less. Uh, so we have not seen a big impact from it. Obviously, it will impact access to destinations, mm -hmm. you know, places where people aren't vaccinated yet or, or just not enough of the population is, so it can slow down progress that way. And then we're gonna pay close attention, but as we always do, we'll follow you know, the authorities around the world, we have to be in compliance everywhere. And we'll follow the, the good counsel from the leading medical um, uh, scientists and 
and, and personnel that we work with constantly. Hey Arnold, you've seen a lot of economic cycles and I think we are trying to assess in our conversations with everybody here at Bloomberg and on air, uh, what is the economic outlook? You'll hear from one airline CEO says things are gangbusters. <laughs> things are going you know, really, really strong. We hear from the Fed chief, we hear from Fed members uh, that you know, the Fed chief reminding us once again that listen, it, you know, it's gonna take time to get back to where we were pre-pandemic, uh, which is why he is still supportive of uh, some of the measures that the Fed has taken during the crisis. How do you see it? Um, is the economy going gangbusters, getting closer? Is it going to be for a little bit and then calm down? How would you describe it? I, you know, I'm not an economist, pronosticator, extraordinaire or anything. But my experience right now is the economy is strong. That's Carnival President and CEO Arnold Donald. We've talked with him, Tim, several times throughout the pandemic. If you want to hear that full conversation, though, feel free to check out our podcast feed. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Coming up in our next hour, the billionaires are reaching for the stars. Richard Branson's test flight into space, well, that one was a success. Jeff Bezos is up next, and Elon Musk, well, he's not that far behind. We're going to talk space tourism with the author of Space Barons, Christian Davenport. Plus, ESG is a key focus at AB InBev, and the world's biggest beer maker is putting its money where its mouth is after a record-breaking sustainability link loan. We'll hear from the company's CFO and chief sustainability officer. And up next, a popular Republican congressman has made himself a mighty big enemy, former President Donald Trump. He's going for a third term. His re-election is going to be a big test for the Republican Party. Can he make it through the primary? Exactly. That's the question. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the fight for commercial control of the cosmos between some of the world's richest men and AB InBev's big money commitment to ESG. Plus the quest for the holy grail in terms of closing America's wealth gaps. We're going to explore that topic with Operation Hope founder and CEO, John Hope Bryant. Always love checking in with him. First up this hour in this week's issue of the magazine, one of our most read stories on the terminal this week. This one about the NFL player turned lawmaker that was a rising star in the Republican Party, Tim, until he wasn't. Here to explain is Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green and the editor of the magazine, Joel Weber. I think what's um, really interesting about Josh's story is there were people pre-January 6th who who really kind of looked like the future of the of the GOP, right? And and Gonzalez was one of those. And now he finds himself in a very difficult role of being a kind of once future leader of, of GOP, potentially a rising star, but mired by what has become from the Trump um, supporting uh, GOP. Mm -hmm. uh, and and Josh, let's bring you in a little bit to to talk about that. What what has been his his tactic to date, and, and how does that put him um, with his constituents? 
You know, I mean, what's fascinating about Gonzalez is that he is every he embodies everything the Republican Party has wanted itself to be for the last 25 years. Uh, he's young. He has a, he's the son of a Cuban immigrant. He was a first round draft pick of the Indianapolis Colts. He's got a business school degree, you know, serious, young, hip, all that kind of stuff. Clearly marked as a rising star. And then Trump came along and, and Gonzalez became one of the 10 people who voted, who, who voted to impeach him. And practically overnight, that sort of eclipsed everything else there is about Anthony Gonzalez. And the reason I picked this race, as, as somebody said earlier, he's not as prominent as Liz Cheney, who also voted to impeach Trump and has made that the entire like centerpiece of her political life. Uh, he's just a guy who, who, who voted on his conscience, voted to impeach Trump but is still a conservative congressman with what he thinks is a successful record. So what it sets up is this wonderful test case, almost like a laboratory experiment in whether a serious Republican uh, conservative can get reelected after voting for Donald Trump. And, and what what's so interesting about this is that it's not just Republicans, but Democrats, too, are fascinated by this race because we think it's going to be a sort of a gauge about how mm. strong Trump's influence continues to be one of my consultants i quote in peace uh likened it to groundhog day that you know if 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 the trump challenger to gonzalez's wins then we know it's going to be another season of trump dominating republican party uh but if gonzalez manages to hold on to his seat then maybe spring has arrived and we've begun to move beyond donald trump and who's he gonna be in a showdown with who's the who's the other faces so his main challenge is a guy named Max Miller, who is a former Trump aide um, from the local area, uh, immediately won Trump's endorsement as soon as he jumped in the race, because Trump, as we all know, uh, revels in punishing his enemies, especially Republicans, and has gone after Gonzalez with a vengeance. His first big uh, rally, Trump's post-election at the end of June, he flew to Ohio uh, right outside Gonzalez's district to trash him and tell Republicans to vote against him. So that's a bit of a millstone if you're a Republican congressman running for re-election. But that's what Gonzalez has to deal with. I love that you write in your story that he, Gonzalez, appears to have a healthy relationship with his own political mortality. So he understands he's a football player. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Sometimes you're going to play and be a star player, and sometimes you're going to have another career after it. Tell us a little bit about his his kind of approach. Yeah, well, I mean, what's what's been so I think disconcerting to a lot of you know Republicans and just just sort of Americans generally, I think, is is the the number of Republicans who've kind of truckled to Trump and gone along with you know whatever the conspiracy theory or lie is that that he's sort of pushing. Uh, one name that gets mentioned a lot is South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who who sort of reinvents himself according to whatever politics uh, necessitates. And Gonzalez is adamant that he's not going to do that. Um, mm. And I think the impeachment vote backs that up. But as he put it to me, I mean, he was a first-round draft pick with a great NFL career going. Uh, he tore up his knee. That, that career ended abruptly. But he was able to reinvent himself, went to business school, got elected as a congressman. So he doesn't fear his own political mortality in quite the way I think a lot of other pop, uh, politicians do. And, and that makes him interesting because he's willing to kind of speak the truth, stand up for what he believes in, and let the chips fall where they may. You also make the point, Josh, that he's set out to do, and he's actually getting done exactly what he set out to do, from infrastructure to, to COVID relief to uh, vaccines. And also, he's had a pretty good couple of quarters of, of, of fundraising. So he's been pretty successful thus far. 
Yeah, I mean, the other fascinating thing about this is, like, back in the times before Trump, um, you know, congressmen used to get measured for re-election on, hey, did you do what you campaigned right. on and, and said you had set out to do? The two two, two big components of, of, of Gonzalez's last race were, he said, look, we want to produce vaccine and distribute it to everybody who wants it. That's obviously happening now. And I want to push for a big bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, you know, in, in a couple of weeks ago, Biden came out and announced big bipartisan infrastructure agreement uh, that Gonzalez had had a hand in negotiating. So, you know, by the old measure of whether or not you're a, you're an effective congressman, Gonzalez has a really good case to make. And he is a believer. Not everybody is. But he is a believer that that will still count for something with Republican voters uh, when primary time comes next spring. That was Bloomberg Businessweek national correspondent Josh Green, also our editor, Joel Weber. Josh is also the author of Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump, and the National Uprising. Just got to say, anything that Josh writes, you oh, got to read it. got to read it. <laughs> it's a must read. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, part of my conversation with AB InBev CFO and its chief sustainability officer about the world's biggest beer maker, leaning big time into ESG. You're listening to Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The world's biggest beer company has taken out the largest sustainability link loan in history. AB InBev signing a $10.1 billion revolving credit facility with an initial five-year term that may be extended by an additional two. The loan incentivizes improvement in four key performance areas. It's water efficiency, plastic recycling, renewable energy sourcing, and reduction of greenhouse gas emissions. They're all aimed at helping the brewer achieve its 2025 sustainability goals. So with that in mind, this week I caught up with AB InBev Chief Financial Officer Fernando Tenenbaum and Chief Sustainability Officer Esgi Barsanas from the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, both optimistic about business and their lofty ESG goals. It's been a, a very interesting period for us. Uh, probably if you go back like March and April last year, it was a period of a lot of uncertainty. But it's fair to say since May, the business has been quite strong, a lot of momentum, uh, very good underlying demand. And the momentum has been kept throughout uh, the second half of last year. And, and so far, we continue to be excited about the prospects going forward. So it sounds like we were drinking a lot during the pandemic and we're continuing to do that <laughs> post-pandemic. Yes, beer continues to be quite strong. So so people people love beer and continue to love beer before and after the pandemic. Here, here. Esgi, come on in on this, because one of the things that we yeah. talked about a lot during the pandemic is sustainability and also um, supply chains, right? The difficulties. How is it looking for you guys? Are you able to keep up with demand and get what you need? As Fernando said last year, we really focused on supporting frontline workers as well as our supply chain, our communities and customers. And, um, you know, we provided over three million bottles of hand sanitizers, three million face shields. We helped build six healthcare facilities around the world from Brazil to Mexico. And, um, you know, we were able to remotely support our farmers as well and really kept the buying centers open so that we can ensure that farmer cash flow and supply security. So, um, you know, we're geared for a fast recovery and, and we see that around the world. But in terms of your supply chain, what you need, Eski, you get what you want, you're able to access it and maybe at a higher cost, maybe not. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, for a global company, we're really able to leverage our uh, local networks around the world. So uh, the teams on the ground, our supply chain teams, procurement teams have been working nonstop throughout the pandemic. And yes, this is about resilience for us and business continuity as much as it is about our, uh, you know, community resilience as well. So uh, definitely um, onto a fast recovery. All right. Well, it's good to hear optimism. And I got to tell you, you guys all caught our attention earlier this year when you did that record debt deal, uh, a $10.1 billion debt facility. It was a sustainability linked loan, uh, the largest ever. And it's in a year where we're seeing a lot more momentum on this front. The ethical debt market now worth over $3 trillion. I'm going to cut to the chase. Whose idea was it? How did this kind of come to be at AB InBev? Carol, it was, it was actually a natural process because sustainability has been part of our company kind of forever. I remember when I joined ABI 17 years ago, I was visiting the plants and I was talking to the plant manager and he was really excited he was reducing water consumption. Uh, and then I would talk to another people on the another person on the plant and they were very excited. They were uh, out of our, our waste. They were using like 97%. And I would come back year after year and these numbers were always improving. Then it became 98%, then 99%, and then we're talking 99 point whatever. So it kind of, uh, it's part of uh, our DNA. Even before the word sustainability was out there and it was really important. So it was always, always with us. On the other hand, uh, after some years, we start seeing more and more noise or more good noise on the on the financial markets about sustainability. But it was not very clear what it is, uh, what, it, what it was, and, and what it could qualify as sustainability or not. So even though we were doing a lot of work internally, we we're not necessarily comfortable to be behind some of these instruments before the market was mature enough. So at the beginning of this year, we felt the moment was right. We felt that the moment was right for us to be behind this instrument. Uh, but having said that, there is still a lot to go. Uh, the market is maturing, but there is still a lot mm -hmm. of progress made. There is still a lot of improvements. Uh, but we definitely feel that uh, now we have momentum. And now we felt that uh, given our size and our scale, we need to be on the forefront of these initiatives. Well, it definitely pushes the needle. Esgi, come on in on this conversation. What were some of the conversations? Yeah. I'm always curious about the back and forth between strategy type individuals, senior executives like yourself, and the financial side of the house, which is increasingly involved in strategy. Yeah, it, it really happened very naturally, I would say. And I, I will even give the credit to Fernando's team because it was them they, that approached us that said, you know, you guys are doing a lot of great work. You know, we are looking into renewing our revolving credit facility. How do we move forward and, and really understanding what the sustainable finance uh, options are out there? Um, so it was really the, the natural evolution for us. You know, I always like to say that sustainability is the ultimate design brief, right? So that's how we design our business. You know, the, these for us are really good operating practices uh, just to create that resilience across our business. So it was really a no-brainer to think about, you know, here are the KPIs that we track and, and, and monitor over time. Why not really reinforce that message internally and externally as well and, and um, you know, continue to learn from the, the developments in the market? I really um, am encouraged as a sustainability professional to see how, um, you know, the pandemic has accentuated the materiality of ESG. And I think this is just mm -hmm. the beginning. And, you know, um, this really will allow the companies to put on a long-term hat and really think about uh, resilience into the future. 
Tell me how it works, though, and talk to me about accountability. We do so much reporting. I know you guys put out a sustainability report. Like, So you guys have specific um, metrics, a pricing mechanism, right, that incentivizes improvement in four areas, and that tracks with your overall sustainability goals that you've set for, by 2025. So either one of you, I don't know, Esgi, you want to start? Tell me about these goals. How did you decide? How do you keep track of it and tell the world, here's what we're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So these goals, you know, we announced them back in 2018. There are 2025, 2025 sustainability goals. Um, and, you know, we really wanted to look at our entire value chain and, and think about, you know, what are the touch points? Where's our risk? Where does our impact really lie? And how do we build programs taking in an outward view approach in, in how we show up in the world, right? And and our, our role in society as well. So, you know, when you think about water efficiency or you think about uh, recycled content in packaging or renewable electricity sourcing, these are really material to our business as we continue to to build a, you know, a business for the next 100 plus years. So um, those were our sustainability goals that we were already uh, on track to delivering the, the, this set of public uh, commitments. The, you know, what I think are the most ambitious set of public commitments that we really put out there. They allow us to remain competitive and differentiated and ambitious in the market. And, um, you know, we translated those into uh, the metrics with, with the Treasury team. That's Esgi Barsanas. She officially takes over as AB InBev's chief sustainability officer. That happening on August 1st, along with Fernando Tannenbaum, chief financial officer at AB InBev. Up next on Bloomberg Business Week, John Hope Bryant. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of the Atlanta based global nonprofit Operation Hope. We talk with him about the push to close that wealth gap. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So everyone, let me read from an article by a researcher at the U.S. Federal Reserve. This was back in 2002. Financial literacy training is integral to many initiatives designed to increase the rate of saving among middle and lower income households. Tim, we've been talking about financial literacy for a long, long time. Yeah, we really have. Our next guest not only sees financial literacy as key to closing society's financial and wealth gaps, but also envisions an economic windfall as more underserved communities gain market access and knowledge. Great to have back with us on Bloomberg Business Week, John Hope Bryant. He's founder, chairman, and CEO of the global nonprofit Operation Hope. We talked with him on why the concept of financial literacy is both essential and misunderstood. Financial literacy has been viewed as a brochure or a <laughs> right. website or, or you know, or talking about, you know, compounded interest. That's not what it is at all. Um, <clears throat> What we're saying is that this is and it, my my friend Doug McMillan, the CEO of the number one Fortune 500 company in America, Walmart, mm -hmm. is my co-chair. We're seeing a very powerful signal that this is about business. This is about the economy. You know, the economy lost 450 billion dollars last year because of financial illiteracy. Discrimination against blacks alone cost the economy, according to Citigroup, 16 trillion dollars with a T. Wow. <laughs> it lost GDP. Right. <laughs> yes. In the last 20 years alone, and we just knocked it off right now, you pick up a trillion dollars a year in additional revenue just by uh, letting blacks into the economy in a full and robust way in a hand up, mashing up a hand out manner. And so we believe the color is not black or white, as in race, or red or blue, as in politics, but in green, the color of U.S. currency, and increasing GDP. And this fortune is a fortune locked at the bottom of this pyramid. 
so, so me and Doug McMillan got a, a range of CEOs. Uh, Bob Chapek, CEO of Disney Company. Mm-hmm. Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America. Rosman Brewer, CEO of Walgreens. Ed Bastian, CEO of Delta Airlines. Roger Goodell and Adam Silver, Commissioner of the NFL and NBA. Uh, Sal Khan of Khan Academy. Tony Restford, the billionaire, owner of the Atlanta Hawks. We got those folks together to talk about five things. Leadership at the top, making the business issue. So embed this into your business plan, Carol. So it's not no longer just public affairs or community relations or a nice thing to do. This is like health wellness was 10 years ago. It's like the health care system was 20 years ago. This is what the right to vote was in the 1960s. It's essential to the functional, the fundamental function and functioning of an economy and a democracy. What is it? And commit to it for a year. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, no, it's not prescriptive. I know you're about to say, what is it? It, it, is, it is actually what it isn't, not prescriptive. We're, for some companies like Delta Airlines, is coaching Operation Hope, coaching all 80,000 their employees in financial resiliency because they took out a billion dollars in 401k loans mm-hmm. in 2020 alone. Um, it's, it's helping Walmart employees. It's helping the employees of KKR-owned subsidiary companies. In some cases, it's banks. Uh, we just had a new group, U.S. Bank and Truist Bank and others, First Horizon just joined, Second Dare Bank. And they're looking at how do you get more customers uh, from the bottom of the pyramid? Well, got to get the bank out of the no business, Carol. Right. And back into the yes business, and we do that by raising credit scores, 54 points in six months, mm-hmm. 120 points in 24 months. That just creates, that's emerging markets. Like you're literally taking people um, who are struggling and you, you're pushing them into the middle class by making them bankable. And so for every company, it's different, but all the companies are finding innovative ways. BlackRock is focusing on their retirement community, which happens to be their primary business. MasterCard will be dealing with the digital economy. Um, you know, Time Magazine is involved. Nextdoor is involved. FICO, mm-hmm. the credit scoring company, is involved. This is the, the, the group we announced two weeks ago. Well, and let me just ask you, because when you said that Citigroup number, um, discrimination against black blacks have cost $16 trillion in GDP again after the last 20 years, if anything gets people's attention, Forgive me if this sounds cold and callous, but it's often where the money, like follow the money. That's and right. it's That's it's right. remarkable to me how long it's you know taken for this to happen. In this last minute, you know, why is it that again it's taken these well like well known companies to kind of jump on board, especially when you see the impact socially, of course, but also financially. So companies in the twentieth century integrated the South. People don't know this. It wasn't government leaders, it was companies in the South because it was hurting their economic wallet mm-hmm. because blacks had the same green as whites but were not coming to their businesses anymore. Likewise, I think today they're seeing that there's not enough 55-year-old college-educated white men to grow the economy for the next 50 years or the next 30 years. You need all of us. So to put it another way, Carol, my rich friends eat my poor, my poor friends would do better if only to stay rich. We are all in this thing together. That's Operation Hope founder, chairman, and CEO John Hope Bryan on making free enterprise work for everyone. By the way, he also heads up the Promise Homes Company. That's one of the largest minority-controlled owners of institutional quality single-family residential rental property right here in the U.S. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next, the world's richest stake their claim to the final frontier. Branson, Bezos, and Musk are pouring billions into the resurrection of the American space program. We explore the world of the space barons and the expansion of commercial travel into the cosmos. We'll do that with someone who's been following NASA and space for a long time, writer Christian Davenport. This is Bloomberg.
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Last weekend, one giant step for space tourism. As billionaire Richard Branson took a long-awaited test flight to space alongside five of his Virgin Galactic employees. Now, Branson's trip to space really bolstering the company's plans to debut tourism trips next year. This coming week, it's another billionaire's turn, with Amazon founder Jeff Bezos poised to make History Tuesday aboard what would be the world's first unpiloted suborbital flight with an all-civilian crew. We'll cover it live on Bloomberg. You're going to be on the ground. I'm going to be in the desert of West Texas watching this all play out right there, Carol. Aren't you excited? I'm really excited. Like I can't a, wait. I'm like, like jumping up and down. <laughs> it's a front row seat. Can I carry your baggage? You can. You can come. <laughs> all right. Before we get there, we're going to hear from Christian Davenport. He's a reporter at The Washington Post. He's covered NASA and the space industry for a long time. He's also author of The Space Barons, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the quest to colonize the cosmos. He discussed the promising future of commercial space travel after offering a firsthand account of Richard Branson's wild ride. Beautiful day in Spaceport America in the desert of New Mexico where they've built this uh, gleaming facility, this $220 million taxpayer-funded facility. And, you know, it was typical Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic with like, you know, a band and a celebratory party atmosphere. It's really sort of almost like it's very festive. But on the same time, you're watching this and, and it's nerve wracking and it's tense because you know there are human beings on board and anytime you're, you know, shooting humans off into space, it's inherently risky. And so, uh, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I was holding my breath. I think a lot of people were, um, you know, given the fact also that Virgin Galactic had a fatal accident in, in mm -hmm. 2014. Uh, thankfully, you know, uh, it went, uh, it seemed like it went perfectly. Well, and you know, it's interesting that you say that the party atmosphere, I'm a daughter of an engineer, Bloomberg listeners know this, involved in the early space race. And we all got up early and it was nerve wracking because, you know, my dad would say, you know, there's so many different systems coming from so many different contractors <laughs> on these things, at least from the government's perspective, that so many things could potentially go wrong, although they obviously were really careful to make sure the systems weren't, and then they had backup systems. But it is interesting to see how it's become almost like watching a movie to some extent. A lot of people like to romanticize spaceflight, and there's a lot of hype and a lot of enthusiasm because you've got these billionaires with you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and, and Richard Branson. And it does sort of seem like the movies, but as you and your family know that this is it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly risky. Yeah. A million things have to go right. This is a suborbital right. space trip. It's going just up to the edge of space and coming back down. You sound like it's Jeff Bezos not. for a moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's a, or Elon, because Elon, he's going to orbit. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. You know, so it's like that much, you know, he's going Mach 25 and Richard's going Mach 3. So it's still maybe not quite as dangerous, but still it's dangerous. So next up is what? Jeff Bezos, right? Yeah, and uh, on Tuesday, the, on July 20th, the mm -hmm. anniversary of the Apollo uh, moon landing, and he announced that, you know, some time ago, and then, you know, Richard kind of beat him to the punch. He said he wasn't, you know, Richard was going to go on a later flight for later this summer, or early in the fall, and then all of a sudden moved up his flight, you know, which obviously I, it, it, it angered Jeff and the people at Blue Origin, who, as you were alluding to, sort of saying, well, they're not quite going, you know, up as high as we're going in our you know, windows are bigger and it's on a rocket as opposed to a space plane. But, you know, it's just sort of extraordinary that you have Blue Origin, Jeff's company, which was founded in 2000, and Virgin Galactic, which was founded in 2004, mm -hmm. so all these years ago. And then the founders go to space within, you know, just a few days of each other. I mean, that's just wild. 
you know these guys from the book you wrote uh, and you've talked with them. You know, what is it that we need to understand about Richard Branson? Well, he wants to open up space to more and more people. I mean, today there's something like 570 people who have ever been to space and he wants to open that up. Now, like, you know, he's not opening it up for everyone just yet. It's still very expensive. We don't know how much tickets are going to cost when they reopen, but before they suspended ticket sales to Flying Virgin Galactic, they were $250,000. I think they'll come back on, you know, they've said it's going to be more expensive than that. Some analysts have estimated it could be as much as $500,000. So mm. for like three or four minutes of weightlessness, I don't know that that's going to be in everyone's budget. But if they're able to fly more frequently and they're working on right. already sort of a next generation spacecraft in a fleet, and then maybe they can bring that down and send more people. We've talked about Richard Branson. We've talked about Jeff Bezos. He is up next. So what's the significance, Christian? I mean, I grew up in an environment where this was just so important. It was a it was a new world, you know, new space exploration, you know, going into the unknown and and finding out so much. And then it felt like it waned certainly here in the United States. And then now we're seeing the private sector really step up and push it. What's the significance of all of this? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, because I think a lot of people look at these space tourism flights, and it's a lot of wealthy people, and they're like, you know, we've got problems here on Earth, why are we spending all this money on space? But I think it's significant for a few reasons. One, in terms of exploration and expanding our knowledge and, you know, being able to go out, you know, deeper into space. If you start with space tourism, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about, you know, traditionally, I mean, really before SpaceX came along, you know, you might have a rocket company or NASA, and they might, you know, launch 12 rockets a year, right? And that's just not very much. But if these businesses coming in with being much more efficient are launching, you know, 12 times a month and, you know, many, many times a year, they get better, they get faster, cost comes down, they make space travel just more accessible. I mean, not just for like space tourism, but being able to get to the moon and maybe even get to Mars. And, you know, as you mentioned, like we went to the moon and last time we were there was 1972 and nobody's been back. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think NASA and the government has struggled and you have one political, you know, white, the white house comes in, they say, we're going to the moon. And then another president comes in and says, no, we've been to the moon. We're going to Mars. And then, you know, then it's like, we're back to the moon. They go nowhere. And now you've got these businessmen and they're just like, no, we got to go. We got to go now and trying to create a business case for it. And there is taxpayer money that goes into it as well. Should the public sector, should government still be involved in all of this? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So there's taxpayer money going into some of it, like SpaceX, for example. You know, they have contracts with NASA to fly Mm -hmm. uh, cargo and supplies to the International Space Station. They have a contract to fly NASA's astronauts to the International Space Station. And they've taken that money. And yeah, I mean, they in turn have gone out and built the Falcon 9 rocket and the Dragon spacecraft, and they can use that for commercial purposes. If you ask NASA, they say, that's great. That's what we wanted. We want to help build up the industry. You know, up until now, Blue Origin has been funded, you know, largely by Jeff Bezos and Mm -hmm. his own personal fortune. He's trying to change that by winning some of these contracts. In fact, he's competing right now for a contract to build a spacecraft that would land on the moon that actually... SpaceX won, and uh, Jeff Bezos's company, Blue Origin, is challenging that. But I think what you're seeing is, yes, you want these public-private partnerships 
where NASA and the government is investing in them and getting something for it. You know, they're getting a service, whether it's, you know, flying satellites to space or resupplying the space station or flying astronauts there. And then those companies turn around and, and invest that money in their own companies for a commercial purpose, you know, which should, in the long run, bring down the cost of the government while increasing their, you know, the private sector's capability, which really has grown tremendously, like in the last decade or so. Well, and I do wonder what's kind of cool about the billionaires who are involved in this, whether it's Elon, whether it's Richard, whether it's uh, Jeff. I mean, these are individuals who definitely do it differently and think out of the box. If you think about the impact they have had on our world, and, and especially in terms of disrupting things, especially when I think about Elon and even Jeff, right? I mean, retail has been transformed. The, the, the class, like, just, you know, pick your thing. And I do wonder if it's that these things ultimately, all of this space exploration, right? We've all heard the stories about Tang and, and about Velcro and, you know, uh, I think it was either even Tempur-Pedic beds, right? Like all of this came out of NASA research and so on and so forth. I mean, is there something above and beyond that if we all kind of just let our minds wander and open that the possibility by exploring space, you know, what we might find? That fits right in for like what Jeff talks about this. And he says he wants to use space to open up sort of this new economic dynamism like we had with the advent of the Internet. Mm -hmm. uh, but with the Internet, like that infrastructure was in place so that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg could found Facebook from his dorm room and Jeff could start Amazon because the infrastructure was there. Like the phone lines had you know, laid down the cable and there was this device called the credit card and, and Jeff could take people's money and there was the post office that could deliver the books. Um, and so you could start an Internet company from nothing. But you can't today really start a space company. The bar getting into access is just too high. It's too difficult. The barriers to entry are too hard. Right. And what they want to do is help build that infrastructure so that some kid in his dorm room could start a space company. Our thanks to Washington Post space reporter Christian Davenport for joining us. And once again, I will be on the ground in West Texas covering Blue Origin's flight with Jeff Bezos on board this Tuesday. It's a simulcast 9 a.m. Eastern time, Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio and Quick Take. I can't wait. I bet you can't wait. I can't wait. It's this is like be awesome. the first time you've done something like this. Right? It is the first time I've done something like this. I've never seen a rocket launch before. It's going to be pretty cool. And this is a rocket launch. This is a real rocket. This is not <laughs> like what happened with Virgin Galactic and Richard Branson. This is not what what Virgin. What, you know, Blue Origin would call a high altitude space plane. We're not billionaires battling. We're not. But <laughs> they are. There's, there's some distinctions between the crafts. All right. Looking forward to that coverage. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me at Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is Bloomberg.